0: If you have a Bible, you can open to John 12 12. <clears throat> the uh, words should be up on the overhead. There's an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages. They got a kind of bright blue cover today um, for today's message, and then all the past messages as well that I've done here. And you can pick those up at the. Um, Exits, either now or later, and then all of those are on the church website as well, and some of you have Wi-Fi, you can can go there right now and read it it online. I'm reading from verse 12 down to verse 19 in the uh, New American Standard Bible. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated. On a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. Uh, For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The longer that I'm a Christian, the more often it seems like I'm saddened when I see people who made a profession of faith in Christ, they began to follow him, and then later they fell away from the faith. Uh, Now they're far from God in many cases. In some cases, even these people have been involved in serving the Lord in a full-time capacity as pastors or missionaries or whatever. I don't know if you saw, but the August 4th uh, Time magazine had an article on the um, proliferation right now of so-called atheist churches. And uh, there's one in Flagstaff uh, called Flagstaff Freethinkers. It kind of amuses me that they advertise on the religion page. Um, (laughs) But uh, it is a religion, Uh, just a godless one. But anyway, uh, sadly, in that article in Time, it told of a couple of former pastors, one of them a uh, former Pentecostal pastor who are now um, outspoken atheists leading these Atheist movements. The one in Houston is called uh, Houston Oasis. Sounds like some of the names of these uh, new churches, doesn't it? But it's a an atheist, so-called church. Um, there are many causes for that kind of spiritual failure. Sometimes things didn't go the way that the person expected in in life or in the ministry. Uh, often. The person got burned by others who claimed to be Christians, and they turned against uh, the faith because of that. Some of them had nagging doubts all of their lives about the Bible or certain doctrines in the Bible, and finally maybe the uh, other side won them over with their arguments, the skeptics, and so on. Often when you probe just beneath the surface, there was serious sin that led to the Uh, departure from the faith. Now, of course, we shouldn't be surprised about cases like that because the Bible reports many such examples. Um, John, right here in our chapter last week, we saw mentions Judas, who for three years spent time closely with Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and still betrayed him. In the book of Acts, we read about Ananias and Sapphira in the early church who, uh, because of their duplicity, were struck dead. Uh, We go on in Acts and read about Simon the magician, and it says he believed, and he was baptized. Uh, But then he tried to buy uh, apostolic power from Peter, and Peter denounces him in no uncertain terms. Um, Later in Acts... Rather shockingly, I'm sure, to them, in Acts twenty, Paul warned the Ephesian elders and said, From your own selves men will arise and will lead away the disciples after them rather than after Christ. Uh, Paul warned Timothy and named several men in first Timothy one, several others in Second Timothy one, who had turned away from the faith and were uh, influencing others in a wrong way. And then both Peter and John in their epistles warn about false teachers, uh, men who presumably had been in the church, they had taught the gospel for a while, but now they have gone astray and were leading others astray after them, uh, praying on the flock. So many different reasons that others... Uh, have turned away from the Lord, but it seems to me that at the root of all of these cases is either they didn't know uh, Jesus Christ and who he is, or they lost sight of that. They didn't know Christ personally, or they lost sight of who Jesus really is, because understanding Jesus' identity is essential for eternal life. John says so. We've seen it many times here in John chapter 20 and verse 31, which is kind of the theme verse of the whole book. John said he wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's who he is, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so he's saying if you understand who Jesus is, And, of course, what he did on the cross is implied in who he is. And you believe in that truth personally. John says you have life in his name, and that life is eternal life. So people with it are not going to turn away. On the other hand, if you have false notions about who Jesus is, if you have hopes of what Jesus can do for you in this life, and they don't come about, you'll end up disappointed in who he is, and you'll fall away from your initial profession of faith. Now, we come in our text, as you know from when I read it, that this is um, often called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that inaugurates the final week, the Passion Week, in which Jesus is crucified. It probably should better be called the, the tragic entry, not the triumphal entry, because it triggered his death. Um, The crowds that lined the street cheered for him, but when Jesus entered the city, Luke reports that he wept. He saw the city and he wept over it, and then we have this entry as the crowds are cheering. They think he's the long-expected king of Israel, but as we'll see, They were expecting a military king, a political king, who would deliver them from Rome's oppression, who would lead in a time of peace and prosperity for the nation. And uh, they were not so interested in a Messiah who would have a spiritual kingdom, a Messiah who offered them forgiveness of sins and eternal life, um, who wanted to be lord of every aspect of their lives. And so within a week, these shouts of Hosanna are turned to crucify him and uh, Jesus is led out to Golgotha. But I believe this fickle crowd was following Jesus for the wrong reasons and that kind of a faulty foundation inevitably will collapse. Interestingly, Jesus' triumphal entry is reported in all four Gospels. Um, There are only a very few things that are reported in all four. But to understand it properly, you have to understand that this is a complete, total reversal of everything Jesus has done in his ministry up to this point. Um, Up to this point, Jesus has mostly kept veiled his identity as the Messiah. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, chapter 1, it reports how a demon proclaims that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, be quiet to that demon. Um, When Jesus healed people, he repeatedly commanded them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about me or what I did. Uh, The one that really gets me, when he raised Lazarus' daughter from the dead... He gave strict instructions to her parents. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Huh? She was dead. Now she's alive. What are we supposed to say? He didn't want them to reveal his identity, who he was at that point. Uh, Then the disciples, they finally get it. And Peter makes that great confession. You know, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus strictly warns them, don't tell anyone. Um, The only exception... We saw back in John chapter uh, 4 was when Jesus told the Samaritan woman uh, that he is the Messiah. But that was a foreigner, so to speak, in Samaria. Uh, That's the only exception. But now what you have is Jesus stages a deliberate demonstration uh, in Jerusalem at the most widely attended feast of all, the Feast of Passover, There were perhaps as many as a million pilgrims that flooded into Jerusalem every year for the Passover. And so at this great event, um, Jesus stages this entry. And the other Gospels make it very clear that he deliberately set this up. He directed the disciples to go, two of them, and get the donkey and her colt. Um, He led this... Uh, parade, as it were, into the city. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd are just uh, upset over it all, and they uh, objected to the people's cry of Hosanna. And rather than saying, yes, please, quiet down, Jesus uh, says to them in Luke 19.40, I tell you, if these become silent, even the stones will cry out. Now it was time to proclaim him as... The Messiah. So there's this dramatic shift in Jesus' focus in this event, and you have to understand why. I believe the answer lies in the Jewish conception of Messiah in Jesus' day. Uh, As you probably know, Messiah comes from a Hebrew word meaning to anoint. The Greek equivalent is uh, Christ Christos means the anointed one. And so the Messiah, or the Christ, is the one whom God anoints. He is sent to deliver his people from sin. He is sent to rule over them as king. Um, In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were God's anointed rulers. But as you know, they all fell short. Some really short. Some did reasonably well, like David. But even David, as you know, had some serious Shortcomings and failures. Um, But God promised to send one of David's descendants who would reign on David's throne and who would rule in absolute righteousness and justice, who would crush all opposition under his feet. Psalm 2, for example, proclaims that ruler. Now, that political aspect of Messiah as king. ...is what dominated Jewish thought in Jesus' day. They were chafing under Roman rule. Uh, They wanted a deliverer. And um, they uh, thought back a couple of centuries... ...to the Maccabeans who had delivered them from the Syrian rule. And that's what they wanted now under Rome... ...to get out from under Rome. Uh, That political aspect of Messiah's rule... ...is also behind Psalm 118.26 which is quoted here by the crowd in verse 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then this isn't in the psalm, but they added, even the king of Israel. Now, the Old Testament, however, presents another aspect of Messiah. Not only is he going to be a king who rules his people, and in fact rules all people, uh, but he's also going to be a suffering servant who will bear the sins of his people and deliver them from God's judgment and inaugurate God's kingdom of righteousness. Um, And so he's not only going to be Israel's king, but also Israel's priest and prophet. And as you may know, the history of the kings in the Old Testament, there was a great king named Uzziah, but when he tried to usurp the role of priest, he was struck instantly with leprosy. Those roles were kept separate in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the king who would be also a priest and prophet. And if you're familiar with one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 110, in that psalm, Jesus is not only a conquering king. The Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, is Psalm 110, verse 1. But he's also... Uh, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, as that psalm proclaims him. Also, in Isaiah 40 through 55, you have that suffering servant motif, and the supreme example of it is the familiar Isaiah 53, where Jesus is the lamb led to slaughter, who would atone for the sins of his people. It's also implicit in the other prophecy quoted here, Zechariah 9.9, in verse 15, that presents Messiah not as riding into Jerusalem on a white charger of war, but rather he comes in mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which was a humble kind of uh, image. And so the idea of Messiah as this humble sin-bearer of his people was not dominant in Israel of the day. Rather, they they were looking for this political Messiah. So I believe that what's happening in the triumphal entry is Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, but not the Messiah they were expecting. He didn't come in riding this powerful war horse. He comes in riding the foal of a donkey, which in that day was not thought of as a kingly animal, but a humble beast of burden. And he comes to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And so uh, by this demonstration, Jesus is deliberately provoking the Jewish leaders. Uh, They're apoplectic at this thing, you know, of quiet everybody down, and, and they now up the ante to kill him. As you know, they didn't want to kill him during the feast. They were afraid there would be a riot. But Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain. And so prophetically, Jesus had to die as the Passover lambs are being slaughtered because he is the Lamb of God. And so by this action, he provokes the Jewish leaders and they end up uh, having him killed right as the Passover is taking place. But as John 10 mentioned, the Jewish leaders did not kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his life willingly. He said there in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And so Jesus is orchestrating all of these events for that purpose. Now, all of that is a foundation for understanding the applicational idea of this text. And I believe it's this. Make sure that you follow Jesus because of who he is, And not because of what you think he might provide for you in a temporal sense. So, first of all, let me look with you at the negative side of that statement. And that is, don't follow Jesus because of the temporal benefits that you think he might provide for you. John here presents a number of groups of people who greet Jesus as he comes in in this triumphal entry. Uh, The crowd, he says, who were in Jerusalem for the feast, take palm branches, and they go out to meet him. John is the only one of the four Gospels that mentions the palm branches. So if John hadn't mentioned it, uh, we wouldn't have Palm Sunday. We might have some other name for it, but that's where we get Palm Sunday is from John's Gospel. The background of the palm trees was this. Two centuries before, there were some men named Judas and uh, Simon Maccabeus, and they had led a guerrilla warfare against great odds. They had toppled the uh, strong uh, Assyrian Antiochus Epiphanes and driven the Assyrians out of the land. And when they won the victory, it was celebrated by people waving palm branches as they um, celebrated this great military victory. It also, they had used the palm branches at the rededication of the temple. Antiochus had defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig, and so they had to cleanse the temple, and they celebrated again with the waving of palm branches. And so it became a national symbol for Israel and a symbol of victory over Israel's enemies. And the crowd here, by doing this, is hopeful. Jesus is the new liberator. He's the new Simon Maccabeus and Judas Maccabeus. He's going to free us from Roman rule and bring in this age again when we are under our own uh, political leaders. Their cry in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as I said, comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Psalms 113 to 118 are called the Egyptian Hallel. And those psalms were sung by pilgrims at the the feasts, especially tabernacle, uh, dedication, and Passover. And in fact, when we read in um, Matthew that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn after the Last Supper, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives, if you've ever wondered, I wonder what they sang it was Psalm 118. That was the last psalm of the Hallel. So they sang that psalm and then went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was betrayed. Um, Hosanna literally means save now. It may have been a prayer, but by the time uh, they said it here, it could easily have just been a cry of praise uh, like hallelujah. Hallelujah. Um, the next line, as I said, even the king of Israel is not in Psalm 118, but it reflects what the crowd was expecting. How they were interpreting Psalm 118 is, this is the king, the new king of Israel. And uh, so these people are giving a claim to Jesus largely because of what they think he's going to do for them temporally in this life. He's going to establish a kingdom. There's going to be peace and prosperity. Uh, Every one of us will benefit from what this king will give us. Their hopes were fueled by those who were bearing testimony in verse 17 and 18 of what Jesus had done with Lazarus. They heard, wow, this man raised a man from the dead. If he can do that, surely he can provide for us and our needs. And so it was, again, all temporal in their focus. And uh, they um, thought that he would meet their needs as well. Even the disciples, John admits in verse 16, I'm glad for these candid admissions that John gives us, he says, "Even, even we didn't understand at the time what was going on. Not until Jesus was glorified did they connect the dots with these Old Testament prophecies and go... Ah, that's what was happening. Um, And uh, glorified, of course, means after he was crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And so pretty much the disciples are in line with the crowd. I think when the crowd was shouting Hosanna, the disciples were going, at last, everybody gets it. Now the kingdom is going to come. Now Jesus is going to conquer. And they were devastated As you know, when he was crucified, they just did not get it. And until they saw the risen Christ, they were just despondent. Now, here's the application. If you follow Jesus for what you think he can give you in this life, your faith is on really shaky ground. Really shaky ground. You know, wow, Jesus can make you financially prosperous. Jesus can give you good health. Uh, well, what if uh, you get seriously ill? What if you have a financial setback that's just unrecoverable? You lose it all, go bankrupt. You know? What if your marriage isn't the storybook marriage you thought it would be? What if your kids don't all turn out right and they rebel maybe against the Lord and even are alienated from you? It doesn't all turn out quite the way you had the picture painted by the, the evangelist who told you about Jesus, you see. If it's based on temporal benefits, it may or may not turn out the way that you think it should. We have an example of that, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is a great faith chapter. tells all kinds of victories by faith, but I appreciate the fact that as you get down toward the end of the chapter... Uh, It shows people who trusted God and uh, saw miracles, the dead were raised, victory over armies, you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then right in the middle of verse 35, without any warning, it goes on and it talks about people who were mocked, who were scourged, uh, who were imprisoned, who were martyred in some rather gruesome ways. One of them, probably Isaiah, was cut in two. And they all by faith... Live by faith. It doesn't say these latter didn't have enough faith and that's why they were mocked and scourged and and persecuted. No. They lived by faith as well and they suffered a very different fate. And so the point is, don't trust Jesus and follow him because you think he's going to give you all the goodies here and now. That's the lie of the so-called prosperity gospel. It is not a gospel, it's not good news, it's bad news. And people that trust in it and think, oh, I'm going to be healthy and wealthy like these TV evangelists end up disappointed, shipwrecked in their faith because they trusted in a false Jesus. It's not who he is and what he came to do. And uh, so we shouldn't follow Jesus for that reason. Well, you say then, why should we follow him? Well, the text is clear. Follow Jesus because of who he is. He is God's Messiah. He is God's King. You see, if your faith rests in the person of Christ, then circumstances may be up, they may be down, they may be all over the chart, but your faith isn't in your circumstances. Your faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you may have terrible health and die young, you may have good health and live a long life, you may be poor, you may be rich, Uh, you may have all kinds of trials, you may have a relatively peaceful life, but your faith isn't in those things. Your faith is in the person of Christ and who he is. He is God's Messiah and King. Now, our text offers several proofs of who Jesus is. First of all, there are the fulfilled prophecies that prove that Jesus is God's Messiah and King. And John mentions two of them. There are many, many more. Two of them were fulfilled on Palm Sunday. We've already looked at the first, but let me read it to you out of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Hosanna. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now the Jews understood that to refer to Messiah. And just before those verses, the psalm cites lines that Jesus also applied to himself in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Jesus cites these verses in Matthew 21, 42. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then John also refers to the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, John cites in verse 15 an abbreviated form of that quote. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Uh, He is replaced, you'll notice, rejoice with fear not, and uh, I couldn't find any commentator that explained why. Um, My guess is this. John is writing after the fall of Jerusalem. And that was a traumatic event for the Jews, really traumatic. Their temple had been wiped out. About a million Jews were slaughtered. Uh, Israel as a nation ceased to exist for 1900 and some years until 1948. Um, and, and so it was a traumatic event. My guess is perhaps John is saying you don't need to fear even a disaster like that, daughter of Jerusalem, people of God. Because Jesus is still Lord. He is still king of all. Uh, John Calvin applies that fear not to us. He says, never is tranquility restored to our minds or fear and trembling banished from them. Except by knowing that Christ reigns amongst us. And then he goes on to say that now that our king has come, we need to contend with our fears so that we may peacefully and joyfully honor our king. But John's point here in quoting uh, Zachariah's prophecy is to show that in his first coming, Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem as the conquering king. Jesus came in as the humble servant. He came in offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Now, John in Revelation 19 has a very different view of Jesus coming. You remember that one? He's coming on a white charger of war. He comes to wage war against his enemies and he will conquer with a sword in his mouth and so on. So a very great contrast between his first coming when Jesus offered himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 uh, and then his second coming when he comes to conquer and to reign. And so Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 uh, are just two of many, many prophecies that show Jesus is the Messiah and King. A second line of proof, Jesus's works of power show that he is God's Messiah and King. Uh, John reports a miracle but doesn't call attention to it. And that is, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on an unbroken colt. One of the other Gospels mentions the colt had not been broken. If you don't think that's a miracle, I encourage you to go out to Babbitt Ranch and get on one and see if you can ride that thing peacefully. Uh, you're going to get bucked off into the air. So that was one miracle here. John doesn't even mention it as a miracle. But he does mention, again, the raising of Lazarus, which was probably the most stupendous miracle that Jesus had ever done. All in all, John reports seven miracles that he calls signs that Jesus performed before his resurrection. And then in chapter 21, we'll see an eighth when he uh, again does a miraculous catch of fish for the disciples. Um, I think there are about 35 specific miracles referred to in all four gospels when you collate them. But then there are many others where it just says Jesus healed the multitudes You know, he spent the day healing the sick, and so they're kind of these blanket miracles. But all of those miracles, John reported the ones he did, as we've already seen in John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So uh, Jesus' miracles are a second line of proof. So you have prophetic uh, fulfillment. You have these works of power. And then thirdly, you have Jesus' control of the circumstances that he was uh, living under the Father's timetable, and they prove that he is God's Messiah and King. Now John does not elaborate the story of the uh, triumphal entry as the other Gospels do. They make it clear that Jesus orchestrated this event. He sent his disciples into the city, said, go here, do this, You'll find this colt, bring it, and uh, I'll ride on it, and so on. So uh, John didn't present that, but all through his gospel, he has shown us Jesus is in absolute control of his circumstances. Unlike us, often we're battered around by circumstances. Jesus knew exactly the Father's timetable, and he was on it. And since John chapter 5, there's been mounting opposition to kill Jesus. And uh, in every case, Jesus escapes because, as John often reports, his hour had not yet come. His time was not yet, and so on. In chapter 8, after Jesus has proclaimed his deity, before Abraham was, I am, says the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus went out of their midst unharmed. He just walked through it. Again in John 10, after Jesus proclaimed, I and the Father are one, the Jews accused him of blasphemy. Uh, They wanted to stone him again, and it just says he eluded their grasp. That's all it says. He eluded their grasp. He just went. John chapter 11, after he raised Lazarus, the Jewish leaders up their attempts to kill him, it says Jesus withdrew. Again, his time was not yet. Now Jesus comes back. ...into the city at this hour and the time has come. We'll see that next time and in the rest of John 12. His hour has come and he's going to offer himself as the Lamb of God. And so even though the Jews have this mistaken view of Messiah... ...Jesus openly presents himself as their Messiah. He forces the Jewish leaders to go against their timetable... ...not in the feast and they end up crucifying him... Right as the Passover lamb is slain against, uh, I think it was all inadvertent on their part, but orchestrated by God. Uh, I think Acts 4.27 and 28 sums it up well. The early church prays, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's you know the Messiah aspect there. Whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, they were guilty of killing the Son of God and they were acting in their own sinful will, but they fulfilled the predetermined plan of God. There's a mystery there. That I cannot explain, but it's obviously true. And uh, so Jesus did not die as a helpless victim. Uh, He offered himself willingly as the sacrifice for our sins. So the applied message then of the triumphal entry is make sure that you follow Jesus for the right reason. The right reason is not what he can do for you in this life, although he does many things for us. The right reason is Jesus offers forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father for eternity, and he promises that the blessings of eternal life to all who will call upon him. So he is God's Messiah, God's King. And uh, with the gift of eternal life, you may suffer hardship and persecution, as many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are today. Or you may have a nice, peaceful life, but the point is, it's not for this life. We trust him for who he is and for eternal life. Now, there's one other thought here in our text, and it's in verse 19, and it's this. You can oppose Jesus and succeed in the short run, but in the long run, you'll lose and he's going to win. In verse 19, it mentions the frustration of the Pharisees as they see the crowds exalting Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. Uh, They say, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, This is another example of John's tongue-in-cheek, his irony. Um, He is showing how frustrated they are. What they're saying is, Man, our efforts to get rid of Jesus have failed. Look, everyone's going after him. Of course, within the week, the tide has turned, and uh, they have got their victory, they think. They've killed Jesus. But it was a short-lived victory because on the third day, he arose from the dead. He appeared to many. And when John wrote this at the end of the first century, indeed, the whole world was going after Jesus because the gospel had gone out to the, the Gentiles. And this verse anticipates what we'll see next week in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks who come and want to see Jesus. Why does he mention that? Well, it's an example of, here's the world. You know, it's not just the Jews to the Jews only, but it's going out to the whole world, to the Gentiles, and that includes most of us who are here this morning. Um, There's an interesting thing. If you get a concordance and you look up, Palm branches, there are exactly two references to palm branches in the New Testament. Two, and only two. One of them is in John chapter 12 and verse 13. The other one is in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, that reads like this. After these things, I, I as John, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, get this, and palm branches were in their hands. Palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Great, great victory, isn't it? So John, in his own way, ties together these two events with the palm branches, and we see the ultimate triumph of the Lamb. The first time, the crowd was fickle, and Jesus was crucified. The second time, John sees him in glory, reigning over every tongue, tribe, people, and nation throughout eternity, and uh, John is making the point, You can oppose Jesus in the short run, and life may go well for you. You may think you've succeeded, but in the long run, Jesus is going to win. He's Lord, and and that's the message of Revelation. I don't understand the the details of Revelation, but I sure get the big idea, and that is he's coming back bodily, and when he comes, you better be on his side because he's going to win big. And, and that's the final victory. There there will be no other game after that. So, Revelation shows Jesus triumphing and uh, that he will do. So, to, to wrap it up, ask yourself, why am I following Jesus? I, I trust you all are. But I have a fear that some of you may be following him because you hope he'll do such and such for you. You know, I... I'm single and I really want a godly marriage partner. That's why I'm following Jesus. Okay, I was there once, 40 years ago. And uh, that's a good prayer to pray. And I pray that he will do that for you. He certainly can do that for you. But that shouldn't be your bottom line for following Jesus. Some of the rest of you, you already got that marriage partner and it didn't turn out quite like you wanted it to. And you're saying... Well, I'm following Jesus because I want him to turn this marriage around and give me a happy marriage. And again, I am with you. I pray for you in that. He can do that. I pray he will do that. But that's not a good reason to follow Jesus as the main reason. Or some of you may be saying, you know, I got a lot of emotional hurts from my past. And I'm following Jesus because I need healing. All right. Good. He can give that to you. I pray he will, but that's not why you should follow Jesus. I think this text says to us, follow Jesus because of who he is. And whether you get your head lopped off, or you live a nice peaceful life, whether you are trial free, or you got all kinds of trials up to your ears, or whatever, you, you know that Jesus is God's anointed one, is Messiah, Messiah. Jesus is God's rightful king over the universe. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave. He's coming back in power and victory to take us all to be with him in glory. And so, as Paul puts it there in the end of Romans 8, whether you struggle with persecution or tribulation or distress or or poverty or, or health issues or even death itself, he says we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Our hope is in Christ, and who he is. And if you follow him because of who he is, then the temporal benefits are just kind of icing on the cake. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But when you hit trials, you don't give up on him and turn to other things. You say, he is still Lord. He is still Messiah. I still follow him, even though he should slay me, as Job put it. That's why you should follow Jesus. Dear Lord, I pray if any are here who are not following you, that you would show them their need to turn in faith to Christ today. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb who was slain for our sins. He was raised bodily from the dead. He is coming again in power and glory the second time to judge the living and the dead. And I pray that all of us would be on the right side of that equation when he comes through faith in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as your people, we would not get our eyes onto our circumstances and all of the trials and be looking to you to solve them, and if they aren't solved, that we turn away, but rather our faith, our vision, would be focused on the person and work of Jesus That he is our foundation, even if we suffer terribly in this life. So give us that clear vision of him, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end our service partaking of the Lord's Supper, and the uh, gentleman will pass out the elements. If you're a visitor with us and you know Christ in a saving way, as I've tried to explain, uh, you're free to partake with us. We take the time as the elements are distributed just to examine ourselves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, then having confessed any sins to him, to partake, and I'll lead us in just a moment as we partake together.
1: So we could be free to save you around. Chose to take the cross, shed tears for the lost, broken and the needy, forgiving those who were and will be. The angel made it clear, he told them, Have no fear, He's he's not here, he's not here. There he goes, a hero. A savior to the world, here he stands, with scars in his hands, with love he gave
0: his life so
1: we could be free, A Savior of the world, A Savior of
0: have and need. We can't save ourselves. We thank you that he gave his life freely on the cross for each of us and offers eternal life to everyone simply by faith in him. So we thank you for this reminder of his great sacrifice. We want to just say, Lord, we love you. We want our hearts to be fully drawn to you for what you did for us in Jesus name. Amen. Let's partake of the bread.